Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. In the second message in the series, Pastor Emeritus Jay Abramson explores the problem of unrighteous anger each one of us struggles with and how we can deal with it. Now here is Pastor Jay. Two days ago, I was in uh, Philadelphia where we celebrated, and I really mean it that way, uh, the life of Conrad Cook, who was a pastor here, pastor of discipleship for 11 years. It was his funeral, or as Salvation Army leaders say, his graduation, and it truly was that. Uh, and many of you I know are aware of this. We're praying uh, for Barb and Rachel and Rebecca and their extended families, their kids, and so on. And I've passed that information on to them, and they have given a message to me back to you saying they are so grateful, and uh, they feel the surrounding love of Christ uh, through your prayers and comments that were uh, emails and so on sent to them. So know that they are uh, in good uh, hands. The church they are part of there is a a wonderful, loving church. And I just uh, wanted to pass that along to you as well. Let's pray and then look into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word because it, in fact, is what keeps us on uh, the right path. It shows us the path and it shows us the truth about how we can walk in this path. So uh, through this uh, sermon, Jesus, that you spoke on a number of occasions, help us now by your spirit. Lead us into truth. You said your spirit would uh, enable us to do that. So help us to understand what we need to know from this part of the passage and that sermon today, that we might leave here as those who not only are on the path, but know we're on the path and are able to bring others onto the path with us. We pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. In October of 1909, Vancouver, British uh, Columbia, purchased their first motorized ambulance. They paid $4,000 for it, which in today's dollars would be more like $100,000. Uh, Just hours after rolling out on the streets, the ambulance had its first patient. Uh, Back then, motorized vehicles were pretty new, and uh, not many uh, people were all that skilled in steering them. So Vancouver's first ambulance patient was a tourist from Ohio who was run over by the ambulance. (laughs) At least the ambulance was right on the scene. We make our way through this sermon of Jesus, we might feel uh, a bit like this tourist from Ohio. Uh, That which we think is supposed to benefit our lives, namely a sermon from Jesus, as we get into it, it becomes to to look like something might endanger our lives. So what is this sermon really about? In politics, I think we are all aware that there's a left wing and a right wing. Generally speaking, the left wing loves change. They love new ideas. Uh, The right wing generally loves unchanging things. They love unchanging truth, uh, things that have proven themselves over centuries. Uh, The same is true in theological circles. There's a theological left that loves this sermon because... In it, they think Jesus is challenging the old rules and making up new ones uh, 
uh, of his own. For example, Jesus repeatedly says through this sermon, you've heard it was said, and he quotes an Old Testament law. And then he says, but I say to you, and he adds new thoughts uh, regarding that law. Uh, one uh, uh, left-wing uh, theologian uh, even said, uh, this is all the gospel I need, referring to this sermon. However, the problem is this is not the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we are told, we're, we are given a definition of what the gospel, technically the gospel is. The gospel isn't all the truth we need to know about uh, God and Christ. The gospel is a part of the truth that tells us how we can have a relationship with him. But Paul said, defines the gospel this way. Now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. So we preach and so you believe. Died, buried, rose again. That's the gospel. Uh, nowhere in this sermon does Jesus explain actually how we are saved. So if you're basing your relationship with God on this sermon, you're, you're in big trouble. <laughs> this sermon does not present the whole gospel. But I also don't agree fully with theologians on the right uh, because some of them say that since this gospel isn't clearly explaining, the, this sermon isn't clearly explaining the gospel, uh, they say, well, as Christians, this isn't for us. Maybe this is for Christians during the millennium or something, but it's not for us. But that can't be because we're told in the first verses of this chapter 5 of Matthew uh, who Jesus is preaching to. It says, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This doesn't mean just the 12 disciples. This means anyone who's a follower of Christ. So who is he teaching? He's teaching disciples. This sermon is for everyone who calls him or herself a disciple of Jesus Christ. Pastor Warren Wearsby says this, the Sermon on the Mount has definite application for us today. I've always felt, he says, that Matthew 5.20 was the key to this important sermon, which says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The main theme is true righteousness. The religious leaders had an artificial external righteousness based on the law, but the righteousness Jesus described is a true and vital righteousness that begins internally in the heart. So first, we need to examine the what of this surpassing righteousness. The goal of every religion on earth is for followers of that religion to be in a right relationship with whatever they call God. So how did, the, how did Israel's God say that followers could be in a right relationship with him? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, God told Moses to tell the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. So where does the God of the Bible say our relationship begins? With your actions? No. It begins in your heart. 
with what you believe internally. In your heart and soul is where we begin a right relationship with God, and then that rightness, that righteousness flows out into our might, into our actions. The Pharisees and Sadducees in Jesus' day had this exactly backwards. They said that the righteousness, right standing with God, depended first on your actions. Uh, the name Pharisee means separate or separated one. From this name, you get an idea of how they went about fulfilling the task of becoming righteous before God. They did it by separating themselves from lawbreakers and lawbreaking. They were so dedicated to this, they didn't think it was sufficient to just follow the 613 uh, laws that God gave. They built a hedge around the 613. They added laws so you, by, by not disobeying those, you wouldn't even get close to, by your actions, disobeying the 613. So, for example, rather than just living with the law of keeping the Sabbath holy by not working, they came up with 39 specific things you could not do on the Sabbath. They then appointed themselves as the enforcers of both the law and the hedge around the law. Uh, and they, they weren't then just the moral police, the religious police, they were the food police, the fashion police, the work police, the rest police, the weekend police, the weekday police, and any other kind of police you can even imagine. They truly believed that if they themselves and everyone else in the whole country of Israel would just externally obey the laws, no matter what was going on inside of you, no matter what you were thinking while you were obeying with your actions, if, if you would just do it right, then the blessing of God would fall on the country. Jesus fully understood that the Pharisees' definition of righteousness was to externally obey. That's why he said this to them and about them and was recorded by Matthew in chapter 23. Jesus said, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they, Pharisees, are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Don't forget this statement. This is the key to understanding this entire sermon. Jesus makes it clear he's not against external actions. He's not saying external actions are not important. He states in our passage today, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What Jesus is doing is giving us the true definition of righteousness. This sermon begins with the Beatitudes, which Pastor Rob uh, opened up to us last week. What's the big idea of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor. In what? In finances? In, in property? No. Poor in spirit. Not in externals. For 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in what? Actions? No. In heart, for they will see God. Jesus is defining righteousness in the new way, not divorced from actions, but centered internally, beginning with a righteous heart. That's why when he goes on to illustrate this new principle, he talks about sin not as something only external, murder, adultery, but as something internal, anger, and lust. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. What did he mean? Think of it this way. If I wanted to destroy an acorn, I can put it on a rock, take another rock, and crush it. Acorn, gone. But what if I take the acorn and I bury it in the ground? Can't see it. Could say acorn gone, but is it gone? Or as it grows to a tree, is it in fact fulfilled? If there was no acorn, there would be no tree. If there was no law, there would be no righteousness. Jesus did not destroy the law by what he taught. He fulfilled the law by showing us the way to become righteous in God's eyes. Which leads us to the next and possibly most important question today from this passage is how? How can I experience this surpassing righteousness? Some conservative Christians uh, have looked at this sermon and concluded, okay, so this is a new law. This is a Jesus law. Only this law is tougher than the old law. It's not just what I do that can get me in trouble with God. It's what, even what I think. So we've got to double our efforts to control what Christians think. And this is a mindset that has produced the kind of legalistic churches who have trained a 21st century battalion of new Pharisees to police every aspect of your life, including your thoughts. Is that what Jesus is, it has in mind? Is that the point of this sermon? No. No. Now, Jesus isn't writing a new law. He's pointing to a new way, the only way, actually, to obey the old law. You have to remember, in the Old Testament, followers of God did not have the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do now. They could not have the Spirit until Christ came fulfilling the purposes of the law in his death, thereby us being able to be released into a greater obedience by the Spirit. Jesus is pointing to this in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees. The Greek word here for surpassing doesn't mean like the Pharisees are here. You need to get a little bit higher than them. It's in a word of extreme. It's like to the utmost degree you have to exceed, like infinity you have to exceed. That's what this word means. 
unless your righteousness is infinity greater than the Pharisees. How is that possible? People listening to this, their heads are exploding. They're going, how could we possibly exceed them? These guys are fanatics. The law said the devout Jew should fast once a year. They fasted twice a week. The law said that devout Jews should tithe their income. Pharisees tithe their spices. They believed that external righteousness was what God commanded, and it was through self-discipline that they could produce it. Again, they missed Jesus' point. His point was self-discipline is not the path to a right relationship with God because self-discipline alone won't produce spiritual fruit in your life. Jesus is saying, don't start by focusing on the fruit, the external. Start by focusing on the root, the internal, the unseen, what's going on in your heart. If your heart is right, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll produce righteous fruit. If your heart is wrong, your fruit will be wrong. Matthew 5 Jesus gives this practical example now. He points to the root of anger. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What's he saying? He's explaining the connection between the interior sin of anger and the exterior sin of murder. Murder is not isolated as an action. It's fueled by something. It's the outcome of unrighteous anger. I, I don't have time to go into the issue of righteous anger except to say there is such a thing. We have multiple places in Scripture where, where God is described as being angry. It's possible for God to have a righteous anger. It's possible for you to have a righteous anger. What he's talking about here is unrighteous, sinful anger. Unrighteous anger, he's saying, is the root of murder. It's like dandelions in your yard. If you just pick off the dandelion flower, will that solve your problem? We all know it won't. You have to dig out the root of that weed or any other weed. If you don't get the whole root even, if you even just have part of the root, it'll grow back, right? Will dandelions uh, disappear on their own? No. <laughs> no, if you don't deal with them, they take over the whole lawn. Jesus is not giving us landscaping advice. He's giving us the solution to even the most serious problems in our society today. Jesus is teaching the eternal truth that unresolved, unrighteous anger is the root of murder. And it's not just Jesus that has seen this. Secular uh, social scientists, psychiatrists, and so on have proven this as well. Uh, in fact, a group of uh, psychiatrist, Oxford University, 2012, compared studies of angry, impulsive personalities and found that such people have, quote, substantially increased risk of violent outcomes, unquote. Do we really need psychiatrists to, to tell us that? Is this not obvious? 
In this country, Dr. Jillian Peterson, professor of criminology at Hamlin University, St. Paul, Minnesota, was principal investigator on a three-year grant from the U.S. Department of, of Justice focusing on trying to understand the life histories and therefore what possible causes there might be to mass shooters, school shooters in particular. She had this to say. She was interviewed about the most recent ones, especially the one in Uvalde, Texas. Here's what she said. There is this consistent pathway. In other words, she's saying, we are well aware of what creates a shooter like this. Early childhood trauma seems to be the foundation, whether violence in the home, sexual assault, parental suicides, or extreme bullying. Then you see the build toward hopelessness, despair, isolation, self-loathing, oftentimes rejection from peers. Then the hate turns outward. Mass shooters always have a root of anger that's not been dealt with. FBI study, school shooters found the same link between deep-seated anger, disrespect in a home setting leading to violence, and eventually it going, moving outside the home. What Jesus' solution is to break this chain from anger to murder is you got to dig out the root. Jesus says in this sermon, digging out the root of anger is so important that we should disrupt even our public or private prayer or worship if we're aware of the existence of this kind of unrighteous anger in anyone we know. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, he has some unresolved anger, leave your gift there before the altar. Go first, be reconciled to your brother. Help him deal with this. Then come and offer your gift. Mark remembers Jesus speaking about this in another sermon. He records in, in Mark 11, whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you see it in yourself, he's speaking of any sin, deal with it. Ask God to deal with it in you. The issue of digging out the root of anger is so critical it comes before prayer or worship, so how exactly do we do this? How do we pull the anger out of our hearts by the roots? Truth is, we can't. We have to ask the master gardener to do this. We can't fulfill the law by discipline, but the spirit can fulfill it when he takes control in our hearts. That's what Paul explains in Galatians 5 where he's warning about relying on external actions to produce righteousness. He specifically is mentioning the external action of circumcision, a, a religious right. He says it, that, that does nothing. That does nothing for you. Listen how, he's, how radically he speaks. 
Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, meaning as a means of being made righteous in God's eyes, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law, which none of us is capable of doing according to Romans 3.23 and 6.23. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, by externals. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's only by the Spirit working. Do you see this, the how of surpassing righteousness? It's not by discipline, not by effort. It's by surrendering every day to the Spirit within. And what does that look like? How does that work? Watchman Nee, great Chinese evangelist of the 19th century, would travel throughout rural China preaching. And after he would preach to a, a group of uh, people from a city or town or wherever, he would preach from a passage of scripture. He'd take the page, rip it out, and give it to them. Say, just do this. <laughs> just do this. It's the only way he could get any piece of scripture to people. So by the time he was done with his preaching thing, he had half a Bible left, you know, he's ripping these things out. Then he would go back to see how people are doing. He came back to one town, and uh, a man in that town said this. He said, Pastor Nee, it's been my habit to have a cup of strong drink, you know, liquor, uh, after my evening meal in the winter months. Makes you feel warm. It doesn't make you warm. It just makes you feel warm. Sometimes I would drink too much. After becoming a Christian, we would pray as a family after dinner, as you taught us. But when I would drink, I found I could not pray. Resident boss would not let me. Eventually, the resident boss inside me would not let me even have a drink. I read the scripture you left with us. It said nothing about this. What should I do? Watch my knee, recognizing that this man was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He simply said to him, very good brother, you should always listen to resident boss. <laughs> Surpassing righteousness begins inside with a surrendered, fruitful heart. Then this healthy, fruitful heart will reveal itself in time through fruitful, obedient actions. And what does that look like? How, can we see inside a person's heart? A number of years ago, a 10-year-old boy walked up to the counter of a soda shop, climbed up on a stool, and asked the waitress, how much is an ice cream sundae with hot fudge? She said, that'll be $1.50 which tells you how old the story is. <laughs> Boy reached in his pocket, pulled out a whole handful of coins and starts counting his coins. The waitress is like, no. Counts all his coins. Looks up at her and says, how much is ice cream without the hot fudge? 
She goes, $1.25. He starts counting again. She's like, oh. Counts up and he says, oh, I'd like the plain ice cream, please. She brings the ice cream. He eats it. He leaves. She comes back to clean up. And she finds he left a quarter for a tip. So he had the money to buy the Sunday with the hot fudge, but he chose to leave to get the plain ice cream so he could leave a tip. Can you see his heart? When the root is right, the fruit will not only be right, it will be abundant. What are people seeing in your heart these days? This past week, what did people see in your heart by your actions? If you're a Christian and you listen very carefully, what is resident boss saying to you right now? What are you saying to him? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.